0: Well, we begin tonight a uh, new series called The Final Week, and no, it doesn't mean that anyone's getting fired next week, so this is our last week of employment, at least I hope not, all right? I hope to be back with you next Sunday. Uh, well, what we mean by the final week is we're going to be looking at the last week of Jesus' life, the last week of Jesus' life, what is sometimes called by, by scholars the Passion Week, Passion referring to, to Jesus' suffering on the cross, the, the end of his life. It's interesting that, that if you were to look at your Gospels, they, they, the Gospels, which are the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're written to tell you the story about the truth of who Jesus is. And many of them start with Jesus's birth and all of them carry through, through to his resurrection. But if you look at them, they're decidedly tilted towards one week of Jesus's life, Jesus had about three years or so where he went around the countryside and into the cities ministering, but nearly all of those three years is set aside, and it's just skipped upon. Bits and pieces are taken, but all four of the Gospels really zoom in on this week. In the book of Matthew, it's Matthew chapter 21 to 28, and Mark, it's chapters 11 to 16. In Luke, it's chapters 19 to 24, and in the Gospel of John, it's John chapter 12 to 20, nearly half of the book of John. And when you study the Gospels, of the 89 chapters that make up the Gospels, 29 of them are dedicated to this last week of Jesus's life. A third of the Gospels are. In fact, one scholar has said that the Gospels, these first four books of the Bible, the Gospels are essentially passion narratives with extended introductions. Kind of this was the whole point of writing the Gospel, or this is this last week of Jesus' life, and we have an extended introduction to these narratives that we're going to jump into here over the next month or so. And so the setting is AD 33, late March, AD 33. The crowds in Jerusalem are buzzing. Now, Jerusalem was already the hub. It was the center of Jewish life, of Jewish culture, of of politics. It all took place in Jerusalem. There was normally about 40,000 people or so inhabitants that lived in the city of Jerusalem. But this was the week of Passover. Passover was coming, and as People flocked in. It wasn't mandatory, but many people from around the country made pilgrimage and they flocked in to the city so they could celebrate Passover that Friday in the city of Jerusalem. Estimates were that the size of the city multiplied by at least five. A town of normally 40,000 people is bustling with at least 200 to 250,000 people. And it's an electric atmosphere. People are excited to be there. They are excited to worship. They are excited for the Passover festival, which is just going to be a few days away. And these are people from all over Israel, some of Jerusalem, but many of whom have traveled around and been with Jesus as well. And word starts to get around as people are wondering, will Jesus come to Jerusalem for Passover? Will Jesus come and worship here in Jerusalem for Passover with all of these hundreds of thousands of people? And then word must have spread as Jesus made his way from Jericho, 17 miles away, and went uphill to say, just outside the city of Jerusalem in the town of Bethany, we're told in the Gospel of John, with Lazarus. Lazarus, who was the good friend of Jesus, who, if you know anything about the story of Lazarus, was dead, and Jesus raised him from the dead. And Jesus goes the weekend before and he stays in Bethany in the home of Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. And he he takes the Sabbath there that Friday and Saturday before. And now it's Sunday, Sunday, the week of Passover, and the crowds are ready to burst. And it picks up our story tonight. We're going to be looking at a few, different, um, a few different chapters and verses. So the text is I'm going to work through it. It's actually printed here. Um, this account is in all four of the Gospels. Many times it's very similar, but I've picked these just to highlight for us as we walk through tonight. So in Matthew chapter 21, it says this. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Of burden, So Jesus goes to Bethany. Bethpage would be a small village. Bethany is two miles from Jerusalem. It's close. It's less than an hour's walk. And he's just outside Jerusalem and he sends for a donkey to be brought to him. There is obviously a lot of rich and fulfillment prophecy going on in why Jesus calls out for this donkey. First, as was read during our worship time, it's a fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. That the king who would come to Jerusalem would not come mounted on a war horse, horse, but would instead come riding on a donkey. A donkey is significant. It's not something that was necessarily a demeaning animal, but it signified things. When a king rode into a town on a donkey, it meant he came in peace. When he came on a, on a horse, it often meant he came in war. Thus, when King Solomon entered after his father had died, when King Solomon entered into Jerusalem a few thousand years or 1,500 years earlier than this, he came riding in on a donkey because he was the peaceful king riding into Jerusalem. And it was a sign of peace that was to come. It was a sign of humility for this leader who was to come as well. Other texts tell us in the Gospels that this donkey that was picked was to be a, col- a, a young colt that had never been ridden on before. That, a donkey that had never even been ridden on before, and they're sent off to get this colt. Now, the thing is, Jesus isn't calling for this donkey because he needs it, right? Jesus isn't so physically tired from the two-mile walk that he needs to do that day that he's so exhausted he can't think of making it all the way to Jerusalem. In fact, tradition would have it, even if you did take an animal with you on your pilgrimage to Jerusalem, that the last mile or two you would get off your animal and you would walk to the city. That's how you would finish your journey to Jerusalem, Jesus is clearly doing something opposite here because he's clearly wanting to fulfill this scripture that he is saying that he is this one that is prophesied here in the Old Testament. And so Jesus calls them to do this. And so it says in Mark chapter 11, verse four, it says that they went away and they found a colt tied to a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw the cloaks on it, and he sat on the colt. So they go, and they ask, just as Jesus had said, you will find a colt, and if someone asks you, you're supposed to say this. They go. Just as Jesus has said, there's the cult, they're asked and they reply with the answer that Jesus gave them and they are allowed to leave with the animal. Now this is kind of foreign in our kind of personal property world that we live in, right? Like if you come up to me on the street and you ask me to borrow my car, my answer is going to be, yeah, no, right? Like, no, thank you. I, I'm not going to give you my car keys. Like, no, this is my car. It's my personal property, Um, But back then in their time and culture, especially if it was a well-known rabbi or a leader who came to say that they needed to borrow your property, it was custom that you would lend it to them. And Jesus is certainly a well-known rabbi. The town next door, Bethany, one of their most famous people, Lazarus, was dead and he came back to life. If you weren't there, you certainly heard the story about it, right? Stories like that spread. People knew who Jesus was in the villages surrounding Jerusalem. And so this person most likely recognizes that Jesus is this well-known teacher and they hand it off and the cult is brought to Jesus. Tonight, as we look at this story, this this Palm Sunday of Jesus's arrival into Jerusalem, I want us to look at three insights tonight, three insights from Jesus's arrival to Jerusalem. And the first insight is this, is that Jesus is always in control. Jesus is always in control in control. He's so in control that he's going down a road and he knows where a donkey will be and he knows what you need to say so that when that donkey is taken, the people who own it or the people who are guarding it will let the donkey go. And it's important that we realize as we start working through this week that everything that happens to Jesus, including what's going to happen on Friday, Jesus is in control of. Jesus is Knows. Jesus doesn't wander into Jerusalem the week of Passover oblivious as to what history is going to look back on being the rest of that week. He's not hoping that it'll just be a great celebration. Jesus is walking into this place in history in full control of everything that's going to happen. He is not caught off guard. In fact, in every gospel before arriving in Jerusalem, multiple times throughout his ministry, Jesus actually predicts the events that are going to happen this week. He tells his disciples what it's going to be. And in the book of Matthew, actually right as they're on the road, leaving to head to Jerusalem the week before, he says this to his disciples. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 to 19, it says this, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, this is just a few days before this, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Notice the level of detail that Jesus even goes into looking at the final week and what would be his final hours of his life. That he will be taken by the chief priests and the scribes. They'll condemn him, but they can't kill him. So they're going to hand him over to the Gentiles. The Gentiles will do it. They are not just going to kill him. They're going to mock him. They're going to flog him. And he even tells you his mode of death, that they will crucify him as well. Jesus is in full control going into this week. He knows what everything is going to be. I don't know about you, but I like to be in control of things. I wouldn't necessarily call myself a control freak, but I like to have a good grasp of what's going on. I don't like to be caught off guard. I like to be in control. And there's times in life where you just have to experience the fact that you aren't in control of certain circumstances. And if you try and take control as best as you can, it actually sometimes makes things worse. One of the the ways that I've experienced this in my life is when you're on an airplane No, I was actually out of town this last week, um, suffering for Jesus in Southern California. Someone's got to do it. I was glad to do it. All right. The sun does shine there, but it's a little bit warmer than 20 degrees out when it shines. And I I flew home yesterday afternoon and I I used to fly, or I still do fly a decent amount, but I used to be a little hesitant about flying because I've always gotten motion sickness pretty easily. And I'm fine on an airplane when it's going, but sometimes when you're in the airplane, suddenly it like hits a bump in the air. And it goes like this suddenly, all right? You all have been there if you've flown, right? Some I mean, of it's a little turbulence. Now, I know people who actually like turbulence on an airplane. I've had someone tell me before, oh, it's like a roller coaster. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't see the tracks, <laughs> right? Like if, if it goes, there's 30,000 feet between me and the bottom of the tracks. If that thing goes down, that's a long way down. That is not some roller coaster with some little feeling like that. But I used to to just get distressed when turbulence would happen on the airplane. And what I would actually do is I think I would make it worse because I would get so tense. I would get tense and then I would just grip the seats next to me. I'd just start gripping it and you try and anticipate when it's coming, right? Like you can even see outside, let alone you can see the invisible air bubbles that are causing your plane to bounce, right? And I would try and anticipate it. And what it would inevitably do is just make it worse and worse and worse, But as I began to fly more and as I actually began to think through what I was actually doing as turbulence hit, I realized something, that even though I was sitting in the plane and I couldn't see where we were going and the bumps to me were totally unexpected and it felt sometimes, man, turbulence sometimes feels like we're going down, right? How is this plane going to survive this? We're going down. I had to calm myself and realize, guess what? There's a pilot at the front. And he's in total control. Right? When you're in turbulence, have you ever come on and everyone, it's shaken, the, the, the lady, the, the stewardess, and the steward, they're sitting down and suddenly the pilot comes on. Ladies and gentlemen, we are experiencing a little turbulence right now. And you're like, yeah, we are. Like, but his, that soothing voice, and why does, why does he talk, why does she talk in that soothing voice when the pilot comes on? It's because they want to remind you, I'm in control. I'm in control of this airplane. And it may seem out of control, but I'm in control of this airplane. Sometimes life seems out of control. Sometimes your life seems like it's a turbulent airplane ride. But there's a pilot of your life, and he's got everything under control. He's got everything under control. And the bumps and the ups and downs may catch you totally off guard, but they don't catch him off guard. He knows what's coming, and he is in total control of everything. No matter what turbulence is hitting your life right now, Jesus is still in control, not just of this week in history 2,000 years ago. He's still in control right now, and he knows, and he reigns, and he rules. So this cult is brought to Jesus and it says this in, in Mark chapter 11, verse eight, it says that many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, "Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our Father David, Hosanna in the highest." The crowds were there and they spread their cloaks on the road. They spread branches on the road before him. It says in Luke that these crowds gives us identity where people who knew where Jesus was, they had heard that he was out in Bethany. So they actually go out to meet him. So this is taking place on the road towards Jerusalem. We're outside of town, maybe half a mile to two miles somewhere outside of Jerusalem still. And they go out and they meet him. And these are those who had most likely experienced some of the teaching and ministry of Jesus already. These were those who were there when five loaves and two fish suddenly fed 5,000 people. They were there a few weeks later when it fed 4,000 people. They were there when they saw the man who had never walked before get up and take his mat and leave. They were there as they saw sight restored to the blind. They had seen these things happen. Many of them had followed Jesus around. They had heard his teaching. They knew who he was. And they went out and they shouted praise to him. They shouted Hosanna, an expression that means save us. But by this time, scholars think, may have simply been, like we say now, the, the shout of hallelujah or a praise God kind of shout. Praise God. Save us, God. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And they shout out that this one who's riding into town on a donkey is not just a great rabbi, but he's their king. He is the coming king. Not just any king, the king from the line of David. He is the promised king from all of the Old Testament. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ, the one who was to come to save God's people. They shout out that he's the king. This is the king who's coming. He's now here walking into Jerusalem. He has arrived. Some scholars think that this is one of the most pivotal moments of all of Jesus' ministry. He said, before this moment, when the crowds chanted this publicly to Jesus, he could have lived a long life. The Pharisees didn't like him, but Jesus laid low enough, and he kind of was in Jerusalem Jerusalem, then out into the countryside up to the north of Israel. He was around and about enough that they wouldn't have actually done anything serious to him. But he walked in on a cult with the people bowing down, praising God and calling him the king. And that was treason because Caesar was actually the king. Caesar was the king. Who is this man they call the king? You can't have two kings of a kingdom. And it's at this moment where he is publicly declared to be the king that the sparks start to begin to go and momentum starts to lead. And now there's no turning back. There's no just withdrawing and leaving a quiet life any longer. The commitment has been made. And this is a shocking claim. This is a bold claim that Jesus is the king, that he is the Messiah. So much so that in Luke chapter 19, verse 39, it tells us this, that some of the Pharisees were there, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples, rebuke them. How dare they say this about you? How dare they claim that you are the king, the promised one of the Old Testament? Verse 40, he answered, Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. If my disciples didn't worship me, the very stones would cry out. This is a rebuke back to the Pharisees saying, My disciples, these followers of me recognize who I am, and it's right that they call out to me. See, this this idea of nature talking, of nature crying out, it's seen throughout the Bible as nature cries out when such an injustice has been done that nature itself has to cry out to correct that injustice. It's seen first in, in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, when Cain murders his brother, God says to him, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying up from the ground. Such an injustice that even nature is protesting against it. In James chapter 5, verse 4, talking about rich men withholding wages from others, it says this, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept by fraud, they are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. See, by saying that even the stones will cry out, Jesus is saying it's not just proper that my disciples and my followers cry out and worship me. It actually would be unjust if they didn't. If they didn't, it would be such an injustice if I am not worshiped as the Messiah that even nature itself would cry out injustice just like how it would against a murder victim. That's the Jesus that walked into Jerusalem. And the second insight that Jesus gives us is that Jesus is worthy of worship. Jesus is worthy of worship. He's so worthy of worship that it's actually an injustice when we don't worship him. It's so unjust when we don't worship and glorify and give him the praise he's due that it's actually wrong for us to withhold worship from him. But see, sometimes in our lives... There's, there can be things that cause us to stop worshiping God. Busyness, distractions, pain, suffering. Sometimes things stop us from worshiping God and giving him the glory that's due his name. I don't know if you've, uh, if you've noticed this, but I, I was thinking about this the other day as I was watching TV this last week. And I was watching the Blackhawks game. And I was thinking about it. Have you realized how many fewer Blackhawks fans there seem to be now than there were four years ago? Have you realized that four years ago they were on their way to winning the third Stanley Cup in I think five or six years? Everyone loved the Blackhawks. Everyone was talking about the Blackhawks. The Blackhawks, this if you watch TV in Chicago, you wouldn't even know the Blackhawks were a professional team here. Why? Because they're like in second to last place. They're not good anymore. And suddenly when a team's not good anymore, we kind of just kind of forget about them, right? No one talks about it. They they still exist, but it's not a big deal. For some reason, it still costs an arm and a leg to go to a game, but we we just don't, it kind of has faded away from it. See, oftentimes we're the same way when it comes to our relationship with God. When we view our life as, as it's going well, as we're winning, as things are going how we want it to go, We think, oh, we're worshiping God. Yes, we're going to talk about God. We're going to give God the worship for all the good things that he's done in our lives. And then pain and hardship and suffering and unexpected things come. And suddenly we just kind of easily just slide away. See, the slide away from worship isn't an intentional decision. Most of us don't wake up. Some do, but most don't wake up one day and say, I've gone through too many hardships. I'm going to stop worshiping God now. I'm going to walk away. But what happens is it's a slow slide. As difficulty comes, as busyness enters in, as distraction enters our lives. And we can easily slide away from giving God the glory and the worship that he alone is worthy of. The irony is when it comes to worshiping God is that when we don't feel like doing it is when we need to do it the most. Right? When we don't feel like worshiping God is when we need to worship the most. When you don't want to read your Bible is when you need it the most. When you don't want to pray, that's when you need to pray the most. And it's in those seasons that we need to remind ourselves that Jesus is a God that's worthy of worship. That if we didn't worship, even the rocks should cry out and worship him. So Jesus begins to now draw near to the city. Luke chapter 19, verse 41 says that he drew near to the city. And he's coming from the east side of Jerusalem. Jericho's 17 miles away. It's a few thousand feet up to Jerusalem, being on a mountain. And he's coming to the Mount of Olives, which is across from what's called the Kidron Valley. And the Mount of Olives goes up and it looks out over Jerusalem. This is what it would look like today. I was there about five years ago and it's an amazing, amazing sight. standing on top of the Mount of Olives. It takes your breath away. It's so beautiful. The Dome of the Rock, which is kind of right in the center there, is on what the temple would have been in Jesus' day. And the temple complex would have been all around there. Probably not the high rises way in the back. Those probably didn't exist 2,000 years ago. But this site looking down and seeing the swarms of building, the swarms of people who were down below. Jesus' pause on the way down. Verse 41, Luke 19. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. We often forget that after, as the triumphal entry was going on, Jesus is shedding tears. Because he looks down at the city below him and he realizes what they think about who he is. And it says this in verse 42. Jesus says, Would that you, even now, had known on this day things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation we get this glimpse into the heart of Jesus, that his heart is broken because the Messiah is about to walk into Jerusalem and he knows that he's gonna be rejected by those who he loves. That those who he loves will go in and they will reject him and they don't want him to be there. They don't want him. They're not looking for him. And since they aren't looking, since they will reject him, that there's gonna be consequences to this. It all throughout the Old Testament, when God made covenant with his people, if you didn't obey, there were consequences. It's not that God broke the covenant off from you, but there were consequences for your disobedience. And he's saying because of their rejection of me as Messiah, there's going to be consequences to them. And he talked about how one stone will not be left upon another. And just a few years later, about 40 years later, the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., as Jesus looked to this day that was to come. Mark chapter 11, verse 11. Jesus finally goes down the hill, crosses through probably the gate on the north side of the temple, we don't know, probably through into Jerusalem, and he goes into the temple. Just says this, when he looked around at everything, it was already late. So he went back out to Bethany with the 12th. Mark begins to set up the anticipation of what's going to happen on Monday. As Jesus goes in, surveys what's going on in the temple courts, and then leaves, does a two-mile walk back home to stay most likely again with Lazarus and his family. The third insight that this story gives us of Jesus' arrival is Jesus is motivated by love. Jesus is motivated by love. See, he looks down on this city that will reject him, and he weeps. He weeps. But why does he do it? Right? If Jesus is in total control, and if Jesus knows the events of history, and Jesus knew what was going to happen to him, why did he still go to Jerusalem? Why didn't he just go to Bethany and be like, uh, yeah, never mind. That's going to go bad if I go down there for Passover. I'm going to go somewhere else. Why did Jesus go through, why did he start these events that are going to culminate here in the next few days? It's because of his love for the people. He's motivated to do all that he does this week because of his great love for people. See, God's heart is truly for none to perish and his love is always there for us. It's a well-known verse, the most famous John 3, 16, but it's so true. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's why God gave his son, because of his love. In Romans chapter 5, it says that God demonstrates his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still lost in our sin, Christ died for us. And for those people who Jesus loved and he offered himself to, to enter in as their Messiah, they rejected him. There were very real consequences for Israel because of their rejection of Jesus. The same today for us. If we reject Jesus for who he claims to be, reject him for the love that he offers us, there's very real consequences in store for us. See, sometimes we may think, oh, Well, if Jesus is motivated by love, then I can just wait and it doesn't matter what I really believe because at the end of my life when I die, if Jesus really loves me, he'll always give me what's good. It doesn't matter what I believe. It doesn't matter how I live my life. And this pops up over and over and over again in our world. We overemphasize the love of God and the love of Jesus compared to everything else that he taught and everything else that God is. See, God is motivated by love, but Jesus always teaches, the Bible always teaches, that there's very real consequences to rejecting the love that he offers to us. And It's not just the destruction of a city, but it's eternal separation from God. He's motivated by love, but if you reject that love, if you don't believe that he is who he says to be, there's consequences for our lives when I think of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem and still entering into it and going through all that he did, aren't you thankful that that same love that Jesus had that week for his people is the same love that God has for you today? That same love is the same love that God has for you today. The same love that saved you from your sins, if you're a follower of Jesus, that same love sustains you and is there for you every single day for the rest of your life. I love the story. It's a parable that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke of a son. It's a well-known story of a son who asks his father for his inheritance, but he wants it early. He offends dad. It's rude to ask that, but he does it anyways. He leaves and goes and he squanders it in sinful and wicked living. It says he finally comes to his senses at the end of himself. Comes to his senses is, a, is an expression for he repents. He realizes that what he's done is wrong and he heads home. But What I love most about that story is when he heads home, it says that when he was a long way off, the father saw him and was moved with compassion. That when he saw his child. The love within his heart was so stirred that he ran to his son to offer forgiveness. If you're a Christian tonight, that's the same love that God offers to you over and over and over again, no matter how much you've sinned, no matter how much the same mistake happens again and again and again. The same love that saves us is the same love that sustains us each and every day of our lives. God, we do thank you for that amazing love that Jesus offers and freely gives to each and every one of us. God, we thank you for this final week of Jesus's life. What a significant, the most important week in human history. And we thank you that it's not just a thing that we can look back on, but it's a thing that can change our lives even today because of the love that Jesus has, the love that he demonstrated for us by dying for us on the cross. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.